0: Welcome to Health Now, WebMD's podcast about health, wellness, and you. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We've got a great episode for you today, so let's get started. Everybody knows how to spot someone who's drowning, right? The person is in the water, thrashing around, waving their arms, and yelling for help. That's how it looks in Hollywood, maybe, but not in real life. In real life, it can look a lot different. We've asked WebMD's chief medical editor, Dr. Michael Smith, to tell us what to watch for. Welcome back, Dr. Smith. Great to be here. So there's the stereotypical depiction of drowning, what we just talked about. But tell us why that's false and what you would actually see if someone was drowning.
1: Yeah, it's actually drastically different than we typically see in the movies. Now, very early on, when someone first gets into distress, they may yell out. They might be thrashing around. Very quickly, though, that's going to deteriorate into the person actually actively drowning. And what I mean by that is once they're in that level of distress, they're not going to have the ability to yell out because they can't even keep their mouth above water long enough to actually get the air in and yell out. They're focused solely on breathing. So no yelling, right? So they're going to be kind of silent. There's no waving the arm up in the air because the instinctive drowning response is to put your arms out to the side, slapping the top of the water to keep your mouth again up above water. So they're not gonna have the ability to wave up or even swim to safety. That's just at that point, it's way too late. They'll be upright. So you know, you often see people like maybe face down that while a toddler might do that. Adults won't, They or even older children. They won't be kicking. Their just arms are going to be flailing. And if you think about a child in the water, it looks like they're playing around. Right? Yeah, they're splashing, that's true. If you're face down
0: in the water, you would think they exactly. might be swimming or trying to float right. or something. They're just
1: having a good time. It looks like they're having a good time. Yeah. So here's the key with a child, though, is that make sure they're making noise. A child playing in water makes noise. Yeah. <laughs> so call out to a child. Make sure they respond. Ask them if they're all right. Never take your eyes off of a, a playing child in the water because it only takes a couple of minutes for disaster to right. ensue.
0: So pretty much the the image that we all have in our minds of someone drowning is actually physically impossible.
1: That's exactly right. They can't right.
0: scream. You're not waving your arms or yelling for help or even reaching out if you were to toss someone like a life preserver.
1: Yeah, they're, they're not going to even have the ability to grab onto a life preserver at that point. W- that's why lifeguards jump in the water and save them. I mean, there are several videos on the internet you can see try to spot the drowning child. Right. It's very, very tough, especially when you have a, a sea of people, a crowded like pool in a public or a beach. pool. Wow. Right. You could easily miss it. So that's why, even if there is a lifeguard, do not take your eyes off of your child.
0: Once you see this, obviously you got to get the person out of the water, and you have to act fast because it really only takes, what, three, four minutes for well, someone to for actually like drown? Well, that's brain
1: death to occur, but really wow. within less than a minute, chances are that they're going to submerge under the water and, and obviously completely stop breathing at that point.
0: If you're a parent, uh, when you're, you know, trying to prevent this from happening to your child, really it sounds like you want to be almost right next to them or... You know, Absolutely. where you could grab them very quickly and, and get them out because if you have to act so quickly.
1: Yeah. So for a young child, you should always really be at arm's length, right? Be careful not to get distracted by the thing that distracts all of us today, your phone. Oh, yeah. Right? It only takes a couple of minutes for things to go very wrong. If you have a newborn, even start thinking about swim lessons around the age of one. I know that sounds really one. early. Well, that does sound early. For young kids the most likely way that they will drown is when they fall in unexpectedly, Mm. right? They wander off, they fall into a pool, right? Older kids, it's just more like they they tire out and they drown. But for young kids, that's why at least if they start learning how to swim, you never want that to happen, but their chances are far greater that they'll be able to swim enough to get to safety if they do unexpectedly fall in.
0: Right. If they're familiar with the water, exactly. been in it before, they would know at yes. least some basic skills.
1: That's right. I mean, they teach them specifically, if you fall in by mistake, what should you do? And they learn what to do. Wow. As young as one. Ask your doctor, ask your pediatrician if, if your child seems ready for that. But by about the age of one, they typically are.
0: Hmm. All right. That's good to know. I want to talk a little more about prevention because this is a, I think this is a serious fear mm. for a lot of people. So Obviously, knowing how to swim will come in <laughs> very handy very, to prevent yep. yourself from drowning. What are some other things that people can think about?
1: Well, so there are two groups of kids, especially, that are most at risk. One is teens, which we don't typically think about. Sometimes that can, unfortunately, have to do with substance abuse. So, mm. But with younger children, it is really that they just tire out. Mm-hmm. Right, They are not the best swimmers. It only takes a quick minute. So even things like in your home, bathtubs. they're Right. Even been, yeah, I mean, it can happen in a bathtub. And even in toilets, right. I've read. There have been instances of it happening there, too. So just be very careful. A bathtub full of water, you should never leave your child alone. Absolutely not. Right. Because it can happen in an instant.
0: We haven't really talked much about, like, rivers ocean, that's a little different from a pool. Are there things you could do? Different prevention tips? Wearing a life jacket might come in handy. Of course, yeah,
1: yeah. And I mean, the biggest thing is never to trust the child. You know, the child, it's something can go bad quickly. So to never take your eyes off the child, to always be within arm's length of to be able to grab the child, because as we were talking about a minute ago, they're not going to be aware enough to be able to swim to safety. It is going to be up to us to save them. So, it really is up to us to be aware of everything that's going on, especially in public places where there there may be more crowds and it's easier for a kid to just appear like they're caught up in the moment when something bad could be happening.
0: And for adults, too. Obviously, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about kids, but this can also happen to adults. So watch out for grownups who are in distress. Maybe they've had one too many cocktails and... Yeah. Keep those key signs of drowning in mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are people who are seemingly good or decent swimmers who drown. And oftentimes it is, you know, related to some substance abuse that they've partaken in. So just be really careful out there. I live on a lake. There's just this past weekend, an adult, a full-grown man drowned. Oh, gosh. Right. So it can happen. So just be really aware of your friends. Keep an eye on each other. And, you know, let's protect each other through these summer months because, unfortunately, drowning is way too common.
0: Great safety tips to keep in mind this summer. Thank you, Dr. Smith. My pleasure. You've probably got your skincare routine down pat, but maybe you also keep an eye on new beauty trends and wondering if they work. We're going to get into some of them today, from bentonite clay to jade rollers. And what's up with microblading your eyebrows or wearing magnetic eyelashes? Lots to talk about today with WebMD blogger and Medford, Oregon dermatologist, Dr. Laurel Garrity. Dr. Garrity, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. All right. Let's start with something that sounds somewhat bizarre to me, to be honest. Magnetic eyelashes. Really? Are they safe? And and how well do they work?
2: You're making me laugh because I have the same reaction to this trend, Carrie. Um, (laughs) Magnetic eyelashes... They sound like they're something out of a Marvel comic book, right? That's Um, so true. They do do work really well for some people, and they're definitely a hot trend right now among the kind of lash-tastic folks out there. Um, And they work in different ways. Some of them have tiny magnetic anchors that you stick along the lash line to hold those magnetic lashes in place when you put them on. And some sandwich your natural lashes between two layers of these um, magnetic lashes that kind of stick together. So they're easy to put on um, for the most part. I get, it probably takes some skill. I mean, it's nice. One of the advantages is that if you take them off, it doesn't, if they don't involve glue, it doesn't rub or tug at your natural lashes so much. So those are some possible advantages, but there are definitely pitfalls to these and any um, possible fake lashes. Um, you know, of course, they could look unnatural. Sometimes they're not for, you know, probably not for people looking for the most subtle or natural effect. And they don't always adhere to that delicate curved lash line very well. So the potential for foibles and bloopers is definitely real if they become dislodged at the wrong moment. And since they're magnetic, of course, you'd never want to wear them in an MRI machine. That would be a bad idea. (laughs) That would be a bad idea. (laughs) That sounds like it would hurt, actually, if you
0: were sticking them on and then taking them off over and over again. But maybe I'm wrong.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, some people are going to be more sensitive. there's a lot of tugging or pulling at that delicate lash line, of course, it could be irritating. But for the most part, they seem maybe even gentler than the glue-based forms of, of fake lashes. Um, medically, I find it really interesting that the length of our lashes actually seems pretty important, though. Uh, lashes are not just about beauty. They serve a lot of important functions for the eye. And they've done some studies showing that fake lashes of any kind can actually lead to increased eye dryness and irritation. Um, because it seems like longer lashes will actually funnel more air flow toward um, the eye compared to our natural natural lash length, which so is about one third of the width of our eye. So when we alter that, we may be setting ourselves up for some eye irritation, and that's actually been shown in scientific studies. So, they, you know, magnetic lashes or fake lashes might be good for special occasions more than than everyday use.
0: Interesting. Something to keep in mind. Also close to the eyes, what is microblading your eyebrows? Is this? like a tattoo? Is there an actual blade involved? Yeah, so microblading
2: is also called semi-permanent eyebrow tattooing, and it's performed with a tool that looks like this little tiny blade or exacto knife, um, but it contains miniature needles within it. So the, the person applying it creates small linear cuts in the skin where the brows are, while simultaneously planting tattoo ink very superficially in the skin. And those little lines that are tattooed can resemble strands of hair. So the result gives some kind of more permanent, uh, fuller-appearing sculpted brows in not a long period of time. So unlike deeper tattoos, these semi-permanent inks are, are placed superficially in the skin, so they are expected to fade over the course of several months. However, it's possible that some may never fade or resolve completely, because these really are tattoos, even though they're placed superficially in the skin. And microblading is a new enough trend that there might not be too many horror stories out there just yet, but as a physician and a dermatologist, it's the kind of situation that makes Me and and some of my colleagues are a little bit nervous about the potential health risks or cosmetic um, outcomes that may not be desirable. I mean, certainly, infection is possible, you know, if if the skin is not sterilized properly or the technique is not done properly. Um, Scarring is absolutely possible, especially for people who have repeat treatments. That risk kind of goes up and up with each, each treatment. And, you know, if something goes wrong with the cosmetic outcome, a dermatologist might not be able to help that much because there are fabulous lasers that exist to remove tattoos these days. But a lot of these, uh, these inks that are used for the brows contain iron oxide kind of um, metals that actually change color permanently when we do laser on them. So laser may not be an option to, to remove an undesired side effect. So, you know, I've seen a lot of permanent makeup situations gone wrong um, in my time in practice, and th- that's one reason this trend makes me a little nervous.
0: I can understand. If you wanted to get this done, is there something that you could look for in terms of the, a safe practitioner to do
2: this procedure for you? You know, it's pretty tough because it's not like the medical world where things are extremely regulated. So every state has its own laws about safety and who's allowed to be doing these sorts of procedures and what training they have to have. So it really is buyer beware. I mean, probably it's a good idea to look into, you know, A, who's doing the treatment? What are their credentials they're claiming? What are the, you know, state or local laws um, regulating this sort of treatment? They often fall under the aesthetic umbrella. So there are different state organizations that may be able to help guide you. But it takes a lot of legwork, and it may vary totally from one location to another. So a lot of research into who's doing it, their background, and their training and qualifications is important. All right, some good safety things to think about.
0: You recently blogged for WebMD (laughs) about jade rollers, which I have seen all over Instagram and everywhere else online. But I'm a little uncertain as to what exactly they are and what they're supposed to do for you.
2: Jade rollers are these small handheld roller devices that look kind of like a mini paint roller. Sometimes they've got one stone at one end. Sometimes they have a a small jade stone at either end. And they can be rolled over the face and neck as part of a light massage or a cooling treatment. Um, And there are a lot of claims about jade rollers. They're supposed to have healing properties, um, but they may help improve circulation, reduce puffiness, and just be a nice soothing home treatment or home ritual to do. And jade rollers have been around for centuries. Apparently, they've been used since 17th century China, and people are loving them. They're jade rollers right now. They're very hot. But physicians remain pretty skeptical about how much they can really do for our skin. There's frankly no research to support their use. But I've tried jade rollers. I think they feel good. I've put mine in the fridge, so it has a nice cooling effect on the skin. Since anything chilly can temporarily reduce puffiness. Um, So it's just like a nice little stress-relieving ritual that some people might like to do. Um, You know, as physicians, we don't like them for use over areas of skin infection, like if there's a a big breakout or a cold sore outbreak since that could potentially spread um, that germ around on the skin. And we don't like them for use over any palpable lymph nodes. You know, these are supposed to improve the circulation, but if you've got an enlarged lymph node, that might be inside of an infection or another health problem. So we don't recommend jade use or jade roller use over those areas. You might need to see your doctor about that. But, you know, bottom line, jade rollers are totally unproven but they feel good and they're fun. And if they reduce stress and make our skin feel nice, I think that's a reasonable thing to do.
0: Yeah, just something for a little pampering every now and then, just keep your expectations in check about what they can actually do. Exactly. Something else we've been seeing a lot about is bentonite clay. And I obviously clay masks have been around for a long time. Is this the same clay that has been always used in these masks or is there something special about it?
2: Yeah, well, there are many different types of clay from different areas around the world. And of course, soil and clay is going to have different mineral content and different compositions. So, people are, may make claims about, oh, this clay may offer this benefit and this clay may offer another. And bentonite clay is pretty available around the world. It's a pretty common clay, although it was first um, discovered in Wyoming and it was named for this ghost town of Benton, Wyoming. Oh, and it's hmm. supposed to be formed from components of volcanic ash, which are very mineral rich. So, in theory, those minerals may have a soothing or beneficial effect for the skin. Uh, I think people like it because it's odor-free and it's gentle and it may, you know, when you mix it with water, it forms this paste that might be soothing for the skin. But like a lot of beauty trends, it's just not something that's really been well-tested and studied to say, hey, it's going to help your skin in this way or or benefit things that much. One of the most common claims about bentonite, bentonite clay and other clays is that they detoxify the skin. I think that term is a little mystifying to many physicians. We don't really buy that claim. Um, But it has been reported anecdotally to soothe skin rashes or irritation or maybe be used over poison oak or poison poison ivy rashes. So I don't like anything that's, you know, coming from the earth going on open wounds. But as a soothing topical over intact skin, it might be something that that people would enjoy. And I know that in the Middle East, it's been used as a hair softener and a shampoo for, for many years. Hmm. So it's, like with anything, it's, you know, if it doesn't hurt you and doesn't seem to cause itching or irritation or reaction, it may well be safe for use, but we just can't expect too much uh, of the benefits. Right. No miracles happening
0: here. We should make that pretty clear. K-beauty has been a trend for some time now, and um, I'm wondering if you could tell us exactly what it is, and do you think it's here
2: to stay? Well, I would say that Korean beauty or K-beauty... Could be the most dramatic and transformative beauty trend in the last decade. It's really captured the American public's imagination that these elaborate multi step skincare routines, who have been inspired by Asian women and many beauty blockers, um, are, are something that we should adopt. So they kind of imply that, you know, we've always got to be in search of that holy grail skincare product to have healthy, radiant skin. And not only that, we need to invest a lot of time, money, effort, and energy into you know, applying a series of topical treatments on our skin regularly in order to achieve healthy skin. And I honestly, I don't know any dermatologists who agree with that approach. Um, K-Beauty is kind of the opposite of what many dermatologists recommend to our patients. And it's not that we're against K-Beauty at all. Um, It's just that we don't actually need an elaborate skincare regimen to have healthy skin. So dermatologists tend to say, hey, a simple regimen is often what's best, and that might consist of... Gently cleansing the skin once or twice a day to remove dirt, oil, bacteria. Uh, Applying sunscreen every morning is certainly important, Uh, maybe with a vitamin C serum underneath to guard against free radical damage that we can experience during the day. And sunscreens, of course, are important to apply throughout the day if we're going to be outside. Most dermatologists recommend moisturizing daily, exfoliating every week or so or as needed, and maybe a topical retinoid cream or gel at bedtime for gradual skin rejuvenation. So those are pretty simple steps, whereas K-beauty routine might be 18 steps a night. So I, I actually don't think K-beauty is probably here to stay. People love it. And if it's part of a soothing skincare ritual that just, you know, helps us unwind at the end of a long day or makes our skin feel good, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But when I do think you put on multiple, multiple topicals onto the skin, the risk of allergies and irritation certainly increases. So I think in time, things are going to shake down and we'll move toward a more simplistic routine. That makes sense. There are other things to be doing other than spending an hour in the bathroom every night.
0: (laughs) That's true. I can think of many things that I could do (laughs) instead of spending all that time. This next trend has also been around for a little bit. It's young women, maybe in their 20s, getting Botox or similar products to try to prevent regals that haven't developed yet. So do dermatologists agree on whether this actually works?
2: Yeah, you know, dermatologists actually do. I will say uh, preventive Botox or botulinum toxin products is a huge trend right now. Um, you know, I used to do a lot of injections of botulinum toxin products on women and men in their 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond. But now I'm seeing more and more women in their 20s and 30s who are asking for this preventive kind of treatment because, you know, they look for it. They see their moms, they see their aunts, they see their older sisters or other family members, their father's. Who may have kind of deep etched in wrinkles that are hard to get rid of, or a scowl on the brow that just becomes so embedded from repeated muscle use that it's it's tough to get rid of. And they say, hey, I don't want to experience that. I'm going to get on this right now and do a little prevention. And by gradually weakening the muscles over a series, you know, a series of treatments over months or years, they can just help prevent those those wrinkles from ever setting in. So it's a very very popular thing to do right now. And often it takes light doses once or twice a year to. To make a difference. And, and people tend to love it. And I'd say it's not, really not limited to women. I know a lot of the reality dating TV shows now, if you look at a lot of the men, the male contestants, they're all doing it too. They're men in their, <laughs> in their early 20s. And, and, and they are not shying away from preventing Botox either. And if you look carefully, you might notice it. Um, when done well, you, you can't notice Botox so much. And, and some, but sometimes you got to look carefully uh, during a moment of emotion. So it really but, is possible you
0: know, to prevent wrinkles using Botox.
2: It is, because if you think about wrinkles, some, a lot of the wrinkles we get come from the sun exposure that we experience over our lifetime, and sometimes they come from our muscle motion. So if we are using botulinum toxin injections to weaken muscles where they cannot create those deep scowls, those 11 lines that we say between the, two, the brows, or those deep sort of crow's feet wrinkles on the side of the, the eyes, um, it really does prevent um, or reduce the amount of wrinkling that we'll have later on. So it doesn't encompass all aspects of skin aging and wrinkling, um, but it does encompass at least one major one. So how often would you have to do
0: that to really keep wrinkles away for good?
2: You know, I think, um, you know, Botox um, usually lasts about three months. Dysport and Xeomin and Juvo, the other products that are on the market that have the similar botulinum toxin ingredient are about the same. So I find patients are very different. Some young women just want a very light dose of Botox about twice a year. And that's not to eliminate all facial muscle, motion, you know, motion or muscles. Um, it's just to gradually keep the facial anatomy soft, to avoid from the, those deep etched in wrinkles from setting in. So it's almost more just like periodic maintenance, periodic weakening of the muscles um, as light prevention. Other people are here in my office every three months or at other dermatologists' office every three months like clockwork because they just like to do everything possible. So there's a lot of variation in, in what people want and the cost. But prevention Botox is a lot more economical than, you know, people who wait until deeper lines are set in. Then it just takes a lot more work and time um, to get those wrinkles to calm down. But I think wrinkles are important. They're part of, you know, telling uh, the world the the life we've lived and and our smiles and our scowls at our children or or whatever it may be. So I, I don't believe in eliminating all wrinkles, but I do believe in confidence. And if this preventive sort of treatment helps people feel more confident in their skin, I think that's a positive.
0: I want to ask you about some other products that are made with snail mucus. Really, the main question I have is how you would get mucus from these snails, but what are these products actually supposed to do for you?
2: Snail mucus has been, I, I'm not sure if that originated in K-Beauty or some of the Korean products. I know it is definitely found in some of them, but it's been studied over the last few years, and there actually are some some scientific studies in peer-reviewed medical journals describing the benefits of snail mucus products. So if you can get over the ick factor of it, um, they, they did a test in humans showing that um, a topical snail mucus product applied over about 12 weeks reduced signs of age to a certain degree that they could measure. So that's something. Um, and they've also been purported to help with scarring a little bit. So although it's not the most well-tested kind of topical, um, it's certainly probably quite safe. Um, but, you know, again, it's just getting over that yuckiness idea of putting some snail-related product on the skin. Right. That's true.
0: What other trends are you seeing or are your patients asking you about these days?
2: Well, one trend that's of great interest to a lot of patients right now is something called PRP, and that stands for platelet-rich growth factors that can be or platelet-rich plasma. Um, And that's where we take a person's own blood and we spin it down in the centrifuge and we use it for different medical purposes. So I know orthopedic docs sometimes will inject it into joints. As dermatologists, sometimes we inject it into the hair, um, on the frontal hairline to help restore our hairs volume and thickness and there is good and emerging scientific data that this really does help people with thinning hair um, and that's simply by harnessing our body's own power getting the, the, the growth factors that naturally exist in our skin and putting them where they want to have an effect to help regrow hair A lot of people are also using PRP as part of microneedling um, same idea just to say hey skin we're going to apply some of these natural growth factors from our own body onto the skin, to ramp up collagen and elastin production and get a nice anti-aging benefit. What is
0: microneedling? You
2: mentioned that just a little bit ago. Yeah, microneedling is when a small device containing tiny pinpricks is applied over the skin to do some skin rejuvenation or to improve scarring or even in some cases to help with acne. And so there are many degrees of microneedling. There are some home derma rollers or microneedling rollers that you can apply over the skin that are very light. They're almost like an exfoliation treatment that you can do at home. The kind that many dermatologists, plastic surgeons, and even some estheticians will do in the office um, goes deeper. Um, those needles are actually directed into the skin to create a pinprick of blood. Um, and in doing so, harnesses the body's own wound healing capabilities. It's inducing a very tiny wounds all across the face um, in order to harness its powers of saying, hey, it's time to ramp up our production of collagen, elastin, these normal healthy factors that can make our skin look healthy and radiant and may help to restore scars or um, help with some, you know, quote, anti-aging effects, if that's even a word. Um, so microneedling can be bloody. People sometimes call it the vampire facial. Yeah, I was about to ask if that was the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it is. And the vampire facial is typically when we'll put those platelet-rich growth factors on top. So it may be two components, not only the microneedling, but also taking some blood out of the skin and smearing it around on the surface as well. So um, it's a fun trend. There are definitely risks to it. You know, we see infections and reactions after this treatment. Um, there was a terrible case of, of HIV exposure that was reported in Texas at a MediSpa after microneedling. So it is not um, a procedure without risk by any stretch. So it should be done with proper you know, sterilization technique and you should never induce blood at home. There are an, a variety of responsible providers who perform microneedling. I think it's good to look for an esthetician or a nurse or a physician or a physician's assistant who's somehow affiliated with a medical office. I think any medical procedure that's drawing blood, that's involving blood products, um, just for safety reasons, you should make sure there's a doctor around. All right.
0: Well, we've got the rundown for you on some of the hottest beauty trends out there. Uh, Dr. Garrity, thank you so much for taking us through it. Thank you for having me. Here's our tweak of the week. When you're going grocery shopping, leave your credit card at home and pay with cash. Researchers at Cornell University found that shoppers who use debit or credit cards to buy groceries load their carts with a higher percentage of unhealthy impulse items than those who pay with cash. So if you're trying to eat healthier, hit the ATM before you head to the store. It could help your budget and your waistline. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.